the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, there was an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal over the holidays about uh, the incidents of black homicide. Uh, it profiled uh, one individual in particular, a gentleman named Devon Wade, who was killed a couple of years ago. Promising Columbia graduate student, twin brother, uh, raised in uh, uh, raised you know uh, in, in in a humble situation, and had uh, beat the odds to be a PhD candidate at Columbia University, and been sort of a, a well-respected up-and-coming academic in the area of the long-term effects of childhood trauma. He had fellowships from the Ford Foundation, National Science Foundation. And uh, this was not a street crime incident. This was a, a romantic, you know, romantically related, but that's not really the point. Uh, wh- the point, for me at least, was this jarring statistic that was contained in the article in addition to the poignancy of Devon Wade's story. In 2017, 6,839 black men and boys were victims of homicide in America, according to FBI figures. That's seven times the rate for the general population, the rate of homicide in the black community as compared to the general population. And it's up 15 percent in the past decade when, as we know, violent crime has been declining, generally speaking. Most of the victims between the ages of 15 and 34 and in Chicago, where I live, most of the 500 people that were murdered in calendar year 2019 in Chicago were black. Most of the uh, perpetrators in those cases that were solved were black. And yet we have uh, in the uh, sort of popular discourse, at least with respect to the uh, eastern seaboard media mavens, the focus is almost strictly on police violence. And this is not to excuse, you know, this is one of these false choices that the left presents. You either are singularly focused on police violence or it's uh, uh, cultural dynamics in black neighborhoods. You can't do both at the same time. Well, it turns out you can walk and chew gun at the same time. So you can talk about terrible, high-profile cases of police misconduct uh, in addition to the fact that nearly 7,000 black men and boys being murdered in the calendar year 2017 is a big problem that extends well beyond police. And uh, this is the subject of a uh, important piece in City Journal by Christopher Rufo, who's a contributing editor at City Journal, documentary filmmaker, research fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Wealth and Poverty. He's directed four films for PBS, including his new film, America Lost, which tells the story of three forgotten American cities. And he joins us now. Chris Rufo, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. So um, you uh, write about the abolish the police movement. And we're, we're beyond Black Lives Matter. We're beyond... Uh, uh, consent decrees you you have in, at, both at the street level in activist circles as well as in the 
hallowed halls of academia, people seriously arguing to abolish police departments. You do. And this is an idea that I've been kind of hearing about and circulating peripherally for the last uh, year or so. Um, And I decided to take a deeper look. And what I found was actually astonishing. It's that this is an idea to actually abolish the police, to get police officers off the streets and shut down police departments. That is grace the pages of the Harvard Law Review, um, other kind of academic journals, as well as popular magazines like The Nation and other kind of progressive outlets. And there are ostensibly serious people that are making the argument that uh, because policing is kind of irredeemably racist and oppressive, uh, the only choice now is to get rid of it. And uh, I thought it was important to get that argument out there um, and to, to expose it to the light because this is something that is gaining traction among democratic socialists, among uh, even city council candidates, like one here in Seattle who came within 1,300 votes of winning a seat on the city council, advocating for an explicit abolition of the police. Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, it, it's, 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 you know, it's not dissimilar from uh, some of the Democrat socialist members of Congress. Uh, Ocasio Cortez comes to mind arguing for the abolition of Border Patrol, the abolition of ICE, right? They don't want law enforcement agencies that are enforcing laws uh, that they don't like. And so to some extent, we have the same situation here. You have police and urban centers uh, that disproportionately are in minority neighborhoods where, unfortunately, a disproportionate amount of the crime occurs. And so the argument, I guess, is just that those neighborhoods would be better without the police. Yeah, and, and that's really the question, right? When I mean, obviously, if you're proposing to abolish the police, the first question is, and then what? What do you replace it with? Right. And that's really what I tried to hunt for in some of my research. And I found really a range of answers that they provide. The first answer is kind of an appeal to an abstraction. They say, well, once we abolish the police, we need to replace it with full political, economic, social, and racial equality. So saying <laughs> we need to kind of institute a perfect society after we abolish the police um, which I think is is quite difficult to do in kind of a, a fairy tale. Uh, well, the second and, and, idea and, and, is to, well, just on the first idea, and and then who enforces that new brave new world? Exactly, and and then how do you get there? You know, how, how do you kind of create uh, full political and economic inequality or equality uh, without you know the the use of physical force? I mean, historically, any kind of economic leveling to that degree has always been accompanied by a very oppressive uh, internal security force. Um, and then the second, the second idea is saying, well, if we give community grants or transfer payments to poor communities, that will eliminate poverty, which we know is the, which we know is the root cause of all crime. And therefore, if we essentially give people money, they won't commit any more crimes. Um, and this idea too is kind of on its surface really farcical. Just the existence of white collar crime. Uh, people who are not in poverty that commit crimes, uh, just the mere existence of that phenomenon really disproves this idea that if you just give people money, kind of resolve their immediate economic needs, they won't commit crimes. And then the the third is, and this is going to, I'd love to get your your thoughts on this one. The third is is adopting kind of non-white, non-patriarchal, non-Western forms of um, uh, kind of conflict resolution, where they're saying we need to reinstitute or institute things like peace circles to uh, sure. to get people yeah. with these conflicts together. And if there's no kind of oppressive law enforcement that is forcing them to do stuff, 
these kind of indigenous style peace circles could be an answer for places like Chicago. You know, I'll tell you what, uh, I'd love to see them pitch that idea. Some of these academics pitch that idea in the street to the gangster disciples to get a little bit of market feedback. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure that is going to go quite as well as they anticipate. I mean, it's, it, you know, you want to laugh at it, but good grief. As like you're saying, you have candidates running on these platforms and, and, and coming close to winning. I would argue we have candidates on the city council that privately hold these positions and then in academic circles too. Oh, by the way, does anybody want to ask the actual residents, the law abiding residents, which is the overwhelming majority of these neighborhoods, whether or not they want police protection, whether or not they like this idea? Of course, nobody wants to be abused and people want accountability for the police. But the idea that black and brown people don't want police protection, that's the false premise from which all of this starts. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think in, in the activists have a point. They're, they're really appealing to a legitimate grievance, uh, police violence, abuse by the police. Um, this is an issue that I think we can all agree it needs to be addressed. But they're taking that legitimate grievance and using it as a pretext for this much bigger argument. And what I think is really happening is that I, I think a lot of these folks, they know that they're never going to get the abolition of the police. But what they're trying to do is widen the terms of debate. And what we've seen here in Seattle um, that might be something that's happening around the country is that as activists have pushed to this far extreme saying our demands are to abolish the police, um, what they're actually doing in reality is winning some important victories. The Seattle Police Department has had attrition uh, where we have now have the same size police department as 1975, although the city's population has doubled. Um, they, they stopped the construction of a new police precinct that's desperately needed in the city. Um, and then they nixed plans for the city to hire 200 more officers. Um, so, so what I think they're doing is they're putting the extreme position out there to make these very kind of far left, uh, kind of uh, uh, far left positions in a way seem moderated. Um, and, and they're winning victories. And the idea is to um, reduce the number of police on the beat, um, starve the police officer, starve the police departments of funding and move towards this world of no police. Right. And in places like Portland, you have groups like Antifa that essentially act like a, uh, uh, a legitimized militia group when police are, cons- are are ceding to them territory to not just to beat up uh, reporters, but ceding territory to them to direct traffic and otherwise act as some sort of quasi-law enforcement body. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think Portland, you see that uh, more than any other city where it's almost like a, a, a paramilitary organization that they can deploy to the streets and take control and the, the, the government and the police forces stand down. And, and this is causing some really interesting frictions in Seattle and Portland where Chris, you have officers that are, are very Rufo. frustrated. Yeah, we're going to have to leave it there. Chris Rufo, contributing editor, City Journal, documentary filmmaker. Check out his new film, America Lost. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo just gave an interview to CNN about the strike that killed Quds General Soleimani in Baghdad last night, and uh, Pompeo saying, among other things... This is a man who inflicted enormous harm not only on American lives, but created uh, terribly destructive activities supporting Lebanese Hezbollah, Hamas, 
the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, all of the bad actors in the Middle right. East, Qasem Soleimani was at the center of all of it. Bill Roggio uh, from Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, uh, attaching some detail to what uh, Pompeo just referenced, saying it's more than a decade too late. In point of fact, the Bush and Obama administrations knew Soleimani, knew what he was up to, uh, and the terrorist organizations that uh, he was uh, directing, as Pompeo just referenced, uh, responsible for the deaths of at least 600 U.S. soldiers, tens of thousands of Iraqi soldiers, police, and civilians, uh, says Bill Roggio in, uh, uh, from the Foundation of Defense of Democracy. Uh, Catherine Herridge, uh, formerly of Fox, now at CBS, uh, she tweeted out last night, Scoop, senior U.S. government official, confirms to CBS the strike was in response to active threat to U.S. interests in the region personally overseen by Soleimani. Official made clear U.S. prepared to take further action if diplomats, soldiers threatened by his replacement. Uh, so... Just to be clear, with the left uh, doing their pro forma call for you know, congressional authorization or information, uh, Iran attacked U.S. soldiers, killed an American contractor. Uh, U.S. troops are legally there. They're there at the pleasure of the Iraqi government, legally there, and they have a right to retaliate even preemptively to quell a threat. That's what they did, congressional authorization, not uh, – not needed in this case. And I'll tell you what, something else here, too, for as much criticism as uh, Trump gets uh, uh, in, with respect to his uh, perhaps knowledge of American history, he's learned a couple of lessons of recent American history. He learned the lesson of Benghazi, and he learned the lesson of the hostage crisis in 1979 and uh, Jimmy Carter's fecklessness during that crisis. And uh, both were avoided. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, of course, special report, 5 p.m. weekday, Chicago time. And uh, the just his just released book, Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Daring Gamble to Win World War II, his latest uh, three day in his three-day series. Brett Baer, thanks so much for joining us. Happy New Year. Appreciate it. Good morning. Happy New Year. Morning. So um, the, uh, uh, the for, for as much as uh, criticism as Trump gets from the left also as being sort of seat of his pants, uh, no coherence, no consistency. Uh, this has been a pretty consistent and measured approach he's taken to Iran, both Secretary of Defense Esper and Mike Pompeo, describing the last two months that has brought us to last night. Yeah, I mean, you saw Esper and Pompeo in recent days uh, warn, continue the warnings that President, President Trump had delivered, which was if American service people or American interests are attacked, uh, the response will be swift. Uh, they, as per said on our air the other day, the game has changed, uh, in part because what you mentioned there, and we've confirmed it as well through U.S. intelligence and um, through diplomats in the region, that there was an imminent attack. There was something big, according to one diplomat, that was being planned by Soleimani and the Iran-backed Shia militia in Iraq. Um, and whether it was on the U.S. embassy or other interests in the region, uh, it was it was in the works, and um, that is what led to this action. We are told. Now, Democrats will say that killing Soleimani um, makes him far more dangerous as a martyr for Iranians than it would be if he were alive, and that they will continue to say that the president is kind of haphazard and and not strategic in the big picture. Republicans will say 
that the president laid down a marker and stood by it, as opposed to President Obama, who drew a line in the sand and didn't. And uh, they will say that this sends a message that you can't screw with America, and if you do, the retaliation will be swift. Now, Iran will punch back. We just don't know when and how. Well, again, uh, the State Department uh, reporting, and this is uh, your colleague Lucas Tomlinson at Fox News uh, reporting what the State Department put out. 17 percent of U.S. troops killed in Iraq from 2003 to 2011 orchestrated by Iran. They credit, uh, you know, uh, in a macabre way, obviously, uh, to Soleimani. So, you know, to just to your point about how big a figure he was and the, the, the position, too, of, uh, you know, if you take on or take out anybody, any terrorist leader, which is what he effectively is working for the largest state sponsored terror in the world, then uh, you're creating martyrs. I mean, this is the Obama appeasement line. So we shouldn't go after al-Baghdadi. We shouldn't go after bin Laden. We shouldn't go after Soleimani because you create martyrs. Well, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you want to take out principles and architects of terrorist activities. I, I, this is not controversial. I, I think the Democrats are really in a difficult position uh, in terms of uh, an, the argument they're offering. Yeah, I mean, listen, the president has been clear that he doesn't want war and that he's trying to de-escalate, uh, but power is decisive. In the Middle East, weakness is prolific, and um, and that's how it works. If you get punched, you have to punch back. Otherwise, you look weak in the eyes of the world. Now, there were some people criticizing the president that he didn't act earlier when right. the drones were attacking the ships, when other things you know, transpired that he didn't do something. Uh, this time he did, and he's getting criticism for it. I'll just say this, that, uh, you know, we're going to see some kind of response. And I think that these things are true. One, Soleimani had a lot of American blood on his hands. Two, Iran is going to do something. We don't know what or how. And three, this moment has changed completely the 2020 uh, election and expect it to be much more a focus on national security and foreign policy, even in the Democratic primary as early as this debate in two weeks. Well, uh, the, the the other thing here, though, too, I, there's been some suggestion this is in part is Iran trying to feel out the Trump administration's resolve as it pertains to Iraq, uh, you know, not wanting Iraq to become a proxy state of Iran and uh, the concern by the administration that Iran obviously already exercises way too much influence in Iraq. But there's also these other matter. Uh, the matter of the devastation that the sanctions that were reinstituted over the last two years have wrought on the Iranian economy, which is fomenting a revolt on the streets of Tehran. Yeah, listen, the, the sanctions are working in the eyes of putting the boot to the neck of Iran. I mean, they are feeling it, and which is in part the message that the president was sending out on Twitter, I think, this morning, which was, Iran never won a war, but they never or they always won a negotiation. Mm. And the message from the Secretary of State is de-escalation and talking. Um, they believe that, that Iran could get to a place where they acknowledge that talking about the big picture and taking sanctions off and relieving sanctions uh, is possible. Uh, I think there's going to be some retaliation first. Senator Graham this morning saying... If you're an Iranian at an oil refinery and you and Iran strikes the U.S. again, 
uh, I would get another job. Uh, Brett Baer, Fox News anchor, 5 p.m. Chicago Times special report, weekdays, author of the just-released book, Three Days at the Brink. You want to pick up that book for a post-Christmas stocking stuffer. Brett, thanks so much for joining us. As always, appreciate it. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, a very interesting development among the men and women of the left, and who knows who's who these days. But J.K. Rowling, of course, the author of the Harry Potter books, she got into a bit of trouble over the holidays by standing up for a woman in England who had been fired from her job for basically saying men and women are different. Uh, J.K. Rowling striking a feminist note and standing up for a woman. Uh, this drew the ire of the trans crowd. It uh, resulted in op-ed to the New York Times and the Washington Post from trans activists. I love Harry Potter, and so I'm heartbroken by what J.K. Rowling has said that men and that it's okay for a woman to say men and women are different. And you would expect that J.K. Rowling would then apologize in the face of the mob, uh, take down her tweets in support of this woman that was fired in England, and she's done none of those things. Megan McArdle uh, writes about this in the Washington Post as J.K. Rowling figured out a way to break the cancel culture. Mm, I'm not so sure about that, but our next guest may have some insights. He's Daniel Flynn, senior editor of The American Spectator, author of Cult City, Harvey Milk, Jim Jones, and 10 Days That Shook San Francisco, as well as A Conservative History of the American Left. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. How much uh, encouragement should we take from uh, J.K. Rowling uh, refusing to uh, genuflect before the mob? Well, she's the richest woman in, in Great Britain, so I think she can pretty much write her own ticket at this point. And people, uh, obviously, the, the Harry Potter series is really beloved. It, it reminds me of, of what happened earlier this year with, with Dave Chappelle, yeah. where you did have the cancel culture um, knocking him, and he had all these bad reviews at uh, Rotten Tomatoes. But everyone who saw his Netflix comedy special thought it was the funniest thing that they've ever seen in their life. And so the, the, um, the, the mob, in this sense, was overrun by the real mob, the American people or the people in the world, um, because talent does, you know, the cream does rise to the top. Talent does rise to the top. And talent can do whatever talent wants to do. And Dave Chappelle is so talented and J.K. Rowling is so talented that we're still going to buy their books. We're still going to go to their comedy specials um, if they say something politically incorrect. I think the problem is, is when you get lower down the totem pole, people have less power and they have less ability to to um, to be free. Essentially. Yeah, like, like the woman that J.K. Rowling was sticking up for that had been fired from her job. Precisely. If she doesn't have this proxy in J.K. Rowling to sort of stand up for her, um, you know, she doesn't have anything. I, my understanding is she doesn't even have a job at this point. But, but, yeah, right. You know. That's right. That's right. So and the, I don't know if it's any consolation to her. Well, the interesting thing, too, you bring up the Chappelle comedy special. The, the, one of the interesting things about that was he was indicting the woke walkers and this uh, censorious culture, the cancel culture, as they call it. But he was actually making fun of the audience. He he did an impersonation 
of uh, some, you know, sort of intolerant uh, leftist bot. And then he said, you know who I'm impersonating? All of you, you. And actually, the audience laughed along, showing that and perhaps reminding us that those true uh, 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 scolds that have a outsized footprint on Twitter don't really represent as many people as you think they represent. Well, that's what I was thinking about that, that there is a um, silent majority that Richard Nixon said back in the uh, early 1970s, late 1960s. And that same phenomenon is going on today. It's the same, you know, different, different time, you know, new, you know, uh, new bottles, old wine, that kind of thing. There is, it's the same phenomenon. It's the same phenomenon we saw in the early 90s with political correctness, where the people who are very loud uh, tend to intimidate others into getting them to do what they want you to do. And I think with, with the cancel culture, um, it is this noisy minority that is kind of scaring corporations, public officials, um, movie studios into doing their bidding. And I don't, you know, there's not too many people, I mean, all, if you think about Chappelle, pretty much all jokes or maybe 50% of the jokes that you know are based upon differences, you know, people's differences, physical differences, even fat and skinny. And, you know, when you think of, think of uh, uh, you know, any sort of comedy act, and that's what they do. And they're telling us that we have to eliminate those kind of jokes. So it's, uh, the window is sort of closing on what we can and cannot laugh at. Um, I, 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 that's really not a world that I want to, uh, you know, yeah. I want to inhabit. I want to have a world where we can laugh at, you know, just about anything that we want to laugh at so long as it's not cruel. Um, but that's, you know, unfortunately, you know, we need comedy. We need laughter more than ever. And we're, we're getting less of it. Daniel Flynn, I want to hold you over, uh, talk a little bit about something Peggy Noonan wrote on this topic. Get your reaction to it. Daniel Flynn, senior writer for the American Spectator. We'll be right back. And I can't tell you. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to Daniel Flynn, senior editor of the American Spectator, and uh, Daniel Peggy Noonan writing in the Wall Street Journal about the left in a more pointed fashion than you expect from uh, from Peggy Noonan, generally speaking. Uh, but uh, she really gets after the the so-called woke progressive saying the past decade, the rise of the woke progressives who dictate what words can be said and ideas held, thus poisoning and paralyzing American humor, drama, entertainment, culture, and journalism. In the coming 10 years, someone will effectively stand up to them. They are the most hated people in America and their entire program is accusation. You're a racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic. You're a bigot, a villain, a white male, a patriarchal misogynist. Your day is over. They never have a second move. Bow to them, as most do, and they'll accuse you even more of newly imagined sins. They claim to be vulnerable victims and moral. Actually, they're not. They're mean and seek to kill and, like all bullies, are cowards. And she's suggesting this in context of the 2020 election and why the landscape provides for a Trump reelection, even if you don't like everything that he tweets or every rhetorical choice that he makes. It's because of this group that has outsized has an outsized platform in American culture. 
Well, I didn't read that article, but from what you read of the article, it sounds like she's missing something when she says someone's going to stand up to these people in the next 10 years. Someone has stood up to them. And it's the point that you just made that that Donald Trump, you know, for all his faults, I mean, the reason for his success is his ability to stand up to these people and basically say that the emperor has no clothes, that when they expect him to cow and apologize, um, he doubles down. And I think people appreciate him for that. And, you know, it may seem sometimes when he's out on the stump or when he's doing Twitter that the man has Tourette syndrome. And that may be his biggest weakness, but his biggest weakness is also his biggest strength in the sense that he pretty much says whatever's on his mind. He doesn't have a governor, and people appreciate that because we live in a time where there's sort of an internal commissar in all of us saying, don't laugh at that, don't say that, you know, don't, you know you're going to get in trouble if you do. And so we are really hesitant to say what's on our minds, and Donald Trump doesn't uh, have that internal commissar living with him. Do you think that's some, him, I should say? Yeah. And I wonder, too, if, if Peggy Noonan may be walking down a path that gets us somewhere, too, in the sense that uh, once you expose those individuals for who they are, you understand it. Um, even if uh, people are loath to engage privately, they're the 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 uh, accusations they make hold less and less currency. I'm I'm just thinking about this. uh this sort of uh, up and coming female rapper in Chicago who made news by saying whiteness irritates me. I won't delete this. People keep asking me why I'm so angry. Like the news don't exist. As soon as white people realize whiteness was marketed and sold to them and it's just as reductive to their humanity as it is mine, maybe we'll all be free. Um, you know, whiteness is terrible. Michael Moore uh, last week saying basically white Trump voters are bad and they treat what not uh, they treat white non-Trump voters as traitors to their race. Uh, do you see do you get, get any sense that people are getting a nerd to all of this race and I and gender and orientation based politics? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think the reason why people are, you know, the, the, uh, do not like this is the reason that it's sort of risen into great proportions that there are a great number of people that are now obsessed with race. And because there's a great number of people that are obsessed with it, there's a great number of people that dislike this phenomenon. They're sort of realizing that this is not healthy. Um, So to answer your question, you know, are there people that are angered by all this and are fed up with it? Sure. But the reason they're fed up with it is because there's so much of it. So I don't know that we can take uh, optimism and hope in the fact that there's more people upset with it than ever before, because the reason there's more people upset with it is that there's more people into being, uh, you know, hyper racialist type people that are that are really just um, see, see race and everything. Well, and, and uh, your piece in uh, a Spectator about uh, the identity crisis, uh, uh, it's entitled Identity Crisis of a Decade. You make the point that for all for this decade's obsession with identity, we end the decade, we end the decade of uh, the tens. Uh, more confused about our identity than ever. Yeah, I mean, one of the weird things, and, you know, this isn't a political observation, it's just an observation about where we are as a people. I mean, if you look at what entertains us, it's really pathetic. I mean, I thought Star Wars and Star Trek and A Star is Born, but those were all movies that came out in the 70s. It turns out that those are some of the best-selling movies of the past decade. We are living on the fumes of past cultures. We're not really creating things. You turn on the TV and there's Hawaii Five-0 and Dallas and Beverly Hills 90210. 
we don't seem to be creating a lot that's new. Even if you look at the touring acts that are making a lot of money in the music business, it's like Roger Waters and, and the Rolling Stones <laughs> yeah. and Billy Joel and Elton John. I mean, that's stuff that sh was big back in the 1970s. It shouldn't be big now. Um, there should be someone now who is, who is doing something big and creative that people are flocking to. Um, but that's not the case. We're sort of a parasitic culture. And so when I talk about a, an identity crisis uh, you know, of a decade, um, on the one hand, you have all these people talking about identity and, and, and you know, gender identity and all sorts of different identities that they were obsessed with identity during the 2010s. But if you look at where we are as a people, um, just in something as simple as pop culture, we really don't have an identity. We, we are sort of taking the identities of pop culture's past. I mean, you think about Stranger Things, one of the most you know, popular television shows. It's great. It's, it's wonderful. But it's got this real 80s vibe, obviously. Yeah. And I don't know what it is that um, defines when you look at the 2010s. I mean, maybe I'm too close to the picture to see it clearly, and I've just seen the small dots. But I don't know what the, the decade's identity was. And I, you know, my conclusion is that, well, maybe that's an identity all its own. Because when we go to a a Amazon, there's all these algorithms telling us what we can buy. Or Spotify, these algorithms telling us what we want to listen to. It's a real personalized experience. When we, when we watch cable news, you know, one network's for Democrats, one's for Republicans. It's tailored to people. Well, and it's specialized for people. And that may be the identity that it's a real you get your own personalized experience and not some experience that everyone universally has experienced. Sure, sort of everybody's in their own silo. And, and maybe in addition to that, the lack of creativity you're sort of speaking to is the result of the strictures and the fear of a, uh, of a, of a, a culture uh, that uh, you know, is looking to be offended and punish those who offend them on, on whatever basis. That may be part of it as well. Daniel Flynn, senior editor of The American Spectator, author of Cult City, Harvey Milk, Jim Jones, and 10 Days That Shook San Francisco, as well as A Conservative History of the American Left. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us on The Dan Fox Show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, as you're getting to know me, you'll learn that I'm a bit of a cinephile, which means I like movies. I don't probably have quite the eye that a Michael Medved does, but uh, I consume a lot of uh, movies, including documentaries. So I like to make recommendations from time to time, uh, and as we're going into the weekend, here's one. If you live in a place that's particularly cold, like I do in Chicago, maybe good to stay in rather than go to the theater. This documentary now came out last fall. But it just I just became aware of it on Amazon Prime. I think it just posted recently to Amazon. And so you might not be aware of it as well. Uh, the Guardians is the name of it. It's a documentary about uh, 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 set in Las Vegas, Nevada, about a guardianship over senior citizens, private guardianship. Take a listen to the trailer. If you are considering retiring here and you're an elderly, wealthy person, think twice. I spoke to my mom on Thursday, and she was fine. I called her on Friday, and there was nobody picking up. Somebody took my parents. It's not supposed to happen in America. 
I was fighting them back and he was fighting me. They grabbed me and they kept telling me, you'll love it there. I asked them where I was. You're on the sixth floor in the psych ward. People go in, corpses come out. All right, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and appoint your guardian today. A guardian is appointed through the courts to have authority over someone's life. You turn over immediately your bank account, checking account, savings account. They're using senior citizens as the key to the money. We have nothing left. There are relationships between the doctors, the lawyers, the private guardian industry, and the court. My aunt was victimized based on an incorrect diagnosis by an unqualified person. They were trying to convince us nothing to see here. And that raises red flags for any investigative journalist. We've got to keep the light shining on the people that are being taken. I cannot do this. I cannot let these people get away with everything. It needs a master investigation. You cannot believe what was has been going on for the better part of four decades in Clark County, Nevada in Vegas. You cannot believe it. Private guardians that uh, game the system, as you heard in the trailer, in conjunction with family courts to essentially legally kidnap senior citizens and then hold dominion over their assets. I'm not going to spoil anything here. It is so infuriating and so heartbreaking uh, that it's it's must see. You really should check this out and share it with your friends, because one of the things uh, that I'm just looking into now is this is a a state and local issue law that animated this sort of cottage industry in Clark County. But I'm wondering how prevalent this is around the country. We're going to effort the documentary filmmaker, uh, Billy Mintz, as well. The Guardians is the documentary. Check it out on Amazon and have a great weekend. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show